Okay, so how many of you have heard something like uh, a teaching that says something like um, the self or the ego is, is the root problem? That's, that's the problem. Something like that. You're coming more, more of you. <laughs> I know you have. <laughs> so something like that. I mean, we can say it in different ways, but many spiritual traditions, and especially Buddhism, point to the self or the ego as kind of something to be seen through. Is some, somehow it's a problematic uh, thing, or, or, or and we say it's empty, it's illusory, right? Have you heard that too? Yeah. Um, and now you might have heard in that that the self, this ego, is not real. It's illusory in some way, but the uh, components of that self, or the things that go to make it up, the body and the, and the bodily processes, um, the, the, the various factors and, and, and elements of mind, so the um, <coughs> feelings and thoughts and perceptions and uh, consciousness and attention and all this, those elements, uh, psychophysical elements, are real, and the process unfolds. So the self is not real. What the, as we feel it, what the self really is is a process of these uh, components, these aggregates, if you know the Buddhist word. Words. How many have heard something like that? Yeah. Okay. So we say the self is not real as we as we sense it, but what's real is this process unfolding in time of, of what's called the five aggregates: the body, feelings, the perceptions, mental qualities, <coughs> thoughts and moods and intentions or attention and consciousness. Okay. If I take that as a statement of truth, there are many many problems that ensue. Okay. If I take it as a truth. First of all, it's not something the Buddha ever said. So it's a very popular teaching these days when we t- tend to think a lot about process and sort of computer programming and machines having their process. So it's a popular view, but you cannot find one clause in the whole shelf load of the Buddha's teachings where he says that the true nature of the self is a process, a process of the aggregate. It does not exist. Somehow that view has gained popularity. So, okay, just to say the Buddha, uh, very small today, but anyway. Uh, the Buddha, j- just, it's not something that he said. First problem. Maybe some of you don't not that bothered by that, and that's fine. But there's other problems. And one is, just to touch on briefly, that taking that as a truth actually limits the depth of our understanding. So it's... it's uh, it's a statement of limited depth, and it limits. Because not only is the self illusory, but also those elements that seem to make up the self, the aggregates, the consciousness, the body, the, uh, the bodily processes, the perceptions, the thoughts, all these are empty and illusory too. And the full thrust of the Buddhist teaching is seeing that all is in some sense illusory, just as the self is illusory. It's all empty. Okay. So taking that as a truth, the self is the process of the aggregates, is, is limited in a couple of ways. Different, a different approach, a more productive, a, a more fruitful uh, approach for, for opening up depth and a depth of, of radical liberation would be rather to take this teaching of the aggregates, the elements that make up the self, and, and regard them as a skillful way of looking 
we can learn in meditation to regard these moment to moment, contemplate the aggregates as not self. And it seems I was picky, but it unfolds much, much deeper. I regard all this, all this that I usually take as self, I regard as not self. And then what happens? Then that opens a very powerful tunnel into a much deeper sense of freedom, much deeper sense of existence. Now, actually, that's not what we're talking about today. I've just mentioned that. That's, that's a whole other thing. Uh, because this teaching, the self is the process of the aggregates, is not just limited in terms of depth of insight uh, into the nature of existence. It's also limited, I would say, psychologically. Again, it limits us. It's a limited and limits us psychologically. So if I... Uh, have a, have a perspective at times that there, there isn't a self here, there's not really a, uh, a real self. All there is is the aggregates. There's just the aggregates. I can employ that as a view at times. What happens when I do that? It's helpful at times because it simplifies. It simplifies existence uh, at times. It has, it functions, uh, a result is it cools desire. When I see there's, there's just these aggregates and there's not such a solid self, it cools desire, it evens things out. Very useful at times. At times. If I take it as a truth and I try to live my life that way, problems. Uh, a little bit, what's uh, kind of, well, stupid. Um, it doesn't, it will not serve, for example, for many of the dimensions and aspects and directions of our existence. It will not serve for uh, romantic relationship or going to bed with someone for the, for the erotic. It does not, can you see that it doesn't make sense there? You, have, have, what, what, you can't go to bed with someone thinking about aggregates and aggregates. <laughs> it does not give fire to that dimension of our existence. And you know what? We care about that dimension of existence. And we should care about it. Not everyone, because some people are renunciate celibates, etc. But even celibate people, there's something there that this picture, I am just a, a process of aggregates, does, it, does, it will not do. It will not do for the breadth and the depth and the complexity and the richness of our psychology. Or, or in, in some relationships to art and what, and what becomes really deeply meaningful to us. It, it does not fit. It does not. It's an oversimplification. <coughs> We're in danger of oversimplifying our life, our existence, our psyche, the dimensions of our being. And sometimes it's just not helpful. It does not serve. So if I care, if we care about eros in our lives and all the forms that that takes, sexual, romantic, and, and all the other forms of eros, if I care about artistic expression, for example, if I care about lots of other stuff. Maybe I need to let go, to let go. The letting go might be of oversimplification. Opposite. Maybe I need to let go of oversimplification, oversimplifying teachings. Be in the moment. Just be in the moment. Don't cling. Desire leads to suffering. These are uh, saturated with, with this kind of simplistic message. Wonderful in certain situations, hopelessly oversimplistic in others, and not helpful, and not giving 
uh, nourishing that richness that the multicolored nature of our being. So we are complex creatures. We are the psyche is complex. Modern life is is really complex psychologically. Um, we talk about self a lot, but if you really read the original text of the Buddha, you get you get the sense, uh, or I get the sense at least, that the self we're talking about is quite quite different nowadays. We feel the self very differently than they did 2,500 years ago in Indian culture. We live in a different society, so that the notion of self and personality and individual and striving and expressing oneself and not liking oneself and judging oneself, all that complexity, which is so much a part, uh, just the beginning of, of how we feel the self, just did not seem to exist in the same way. The self that we're talking about now is a different kind of self. We feel it. It's not intellectual. We feel the self differently as individuals. So there's that. And there's also the fact of that we care about, as I said, the erotic, the romantic, uh, lots of other stuff, that that's become a part of our culture. It's not something that we can, I mean, we can just regard, oh, that's just delusion. Any romantic feelings are just delusion. I mean, there's a certain amount of truth in that sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> but it's not really the whole truth, is it? And, and the truth is we, we care about that. And that's in our being. And is there not a place in our existence uh, is there not space for a kind of madness? And sometimes, in, in, in sort of, we're kind of corralling the teachings into quite a narrow expression that erases, that flattens something in the being. There's no, uh, there's no allowance for, for a kind of madness or to be possessed in the different kinds of ways that we can be possessed. You know, when you fall in love, you're possessed and you're bonkers. Um, (coughs) Can that have its place? Does it deserve a kind of respect or even a kind of regarding with uh, sanctity that we can very easily erase and just leave it? Buddhism has nothing to say about it. Is there not a place for what we might call the dark gods? Not just all white and fluffy, but actually, do they have a place? The dark gods. So sometimes with the teaching and we relate to it, there's a kind of what I call a fantasy of simplism. We, we want everything to be simple. We want our life to be simple. We want the teachings to be simple. Everything gets simple, simple. And something gets flattened, potentially. Potentially. So, um, in, in our society, I speak and, and hear from many people, and it's a, it's a good thing in a way in our society, uh, although it also results in some problems and uh, some limitations, and in a way it's coming uh, for good reasons, but also not, for su- not such good reasons, that a lot of the suffering that we experience as humans in modern Western, sort of relatively affluent modern Western culture, um, is at the level of, you could say, the personality. This is where a lot of people struggle. A lot of people feel a lot of their most chronic pain in life. It's around the personality and the expressions, we could say, the expressions of the self. So we could, going back to what we said earlier, you could look at all that and regard uh, the self as empty, understand its emptiness, and that will dissolve, uh, actually, the deeply emptiness, the more it dissolves all those problems. 
even this teaching that there is just the process of aggregates can be very helpful to some degree in some of the areas of, of the personality. But as we said, it has problems because it cuts off certain aspects and it, it limits psychologically. So really, what we want to explore today is, are there other ways to approach this whole business about self? Other ways to open up the whole notion of self and the whole what we mean by it, what we feel by it, what the possibilities are. So as I, said, I want to go gradual over the day. And actually, let's start somewhere very, very familiar to uh, everyone. Familiar territory and even familiar ways of working. Okay. If I say inner critic, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, it's this uh, constellation of uh, voices or elements in the bin that's criticizing, that's harassing, judging, uh, usually oneself, could, could be others as well, but that, that sort of thing, the self-critic, uh, some people call it super-ego. Do you know what I mean by that? So let's start there. That's familiar uh, as an experience to most people in our culture. <coughs> How might we heal something like that? Um, well, one way is the loving-kindness practice. Uh, lots and lots of metta and well-wishing over time just dissolves that structure, that inner critic. Just, just, uh, yeah, dissolves. Um, another way would be to see the emptiness of the self, as we talked about, and that will also dissolve it. Sometimes what happens is a person actually, it feels like with the inner critic, that there is, so to speak, someone on the shoulder, a character, this inner critic character, just behind or sitting on one shoulder, wagging their finger and berating us and judging and haranguing us and all the rest of it. So it actually feels like a character with its own sort of autonomy. One of the possibilities... Uh, or an, another possibility is to deconstruct that person of the inner critic. It's not really a person, it's some thoughts, and very importantly, it's a belief in those thoughts. That's, that's the real sticking. I believe those thoughts that are, are being spoken. Um, it also involves aversion and other hindrances. So rather than actually being a kind of person, a character, it, we can deconstruct it and see and just into its elements and that tends to uh, deconstruct some of its power. Really. So that's very possible. But, and this is really what I want to introduce to this kind of thing, is, is the opposite is possible. I could actually either spontaneously allow it to constellate into a kind of person in the psyche or actually deliberately address it as if it was a person. Make it a person. Go along with as if it's a character, a person. So the inner critic becomes a person, or, or a figure, might be an animal or something. And then what? Maybe uh, I can begin to dialogue with this uh, person, this inner critic character. And even with the dialogue, there might be different kinds. So I could take quite a tough stance in relation to this inner critic. I could, it criticizes me and I ask it, why are you saying that? Where's your evidence? And whatever it says, I can come up with another question. I can challenge it. What I will find, if, I'm, if I really hold my ground and I, and I use all my intelligence, I'll find that I'm actually more intelligent than the inner critic. Doesn't, uh, is not the brightest uh, 
what's the phrase, sharpest knife in the drawer. And uh, with with challenging it, actually, it begins to lose some of its power. I could also operate and and work in a much kinder way, a softer way, seeking to understand it. Why is it criticizing? What does it want? What's it after? What does it feel? So both of those uh, are, are possible. So if we backtrack, I can de- we can deconstruct it into elements, or you can actually let it constellate into a person, a figure, an animal, whatever it is, and actually enter into relationship with that. Both can be helpful. The deconstruction and the constellation can be helpful. And it is not the case that the ultimate truth is it is just elements. That's not true. It's not true. It's only a level so both are viable options to us. What might happen if we allowed ourselves to explore in that way of actually engaging and relating to a character, or, or, or a psychic character, if you like? Because sometimes what will happen is we'll see that this inner critic is not really an inner critic. It looks like, it seems like an inner critic, but actually it's not. Sometimes what we find is the inner critic is really what I call a clumsy old protector. The clumsy old protector is actually trying to help us, maybe trying to protect us from embarrassing ourselves in public or being vulnerable or thinks we'll get hurt. So it steps in to sort of preempt that process and and make us uh, not do this or that or express this or that. So that we won't get hurt. It's trying to protect us. Unfortunately, it's going about it in the clumsiest possible way. But its intentions are, weirdly, kindness. But if we can approach it and actually let the image of it fill out, um, explore it and explore a relationship to it, maybe it begins to transform. This inner critic begins to fill out and begins to transform. Or at least the relationship with it transforms. Maybe it's possible to dialogue with it. So a little while ago at Guy House, someone was on retreat and she was having uh, some of this inner critic come up quite strongly. And we were talking about this possibility and so she went away and the next <coughs> time it came up, she turned towards it. And that's the first step because usually what we do is we do this. And just cowering from it, turning away because it's so painful. So I don't actually turn towards She turned towards it. And she asked it, she engaged it, she asked, what do you want? What, 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 what do you want and why are you criticizing? And to her enormous surprise, uh, a very gentle voice, a very kind voice, not an image, a voice, uh, replied, I want you to use your full potential. I want you to use your full potential. And it was so uh, saturated with kindness, this voice, and she was c- completely surprised and then compl- really touched uh, and it brought tears to her eyes. Is that in the critic at that point? The turning towards the engaging has changed something. Or another person on retreat, uh, again not too long ago, um, similarly practicing and then bumping into this inner critic and feeling oppressed by it, etc. And such uh, a lot of pressure, it's like pressure to push, push, push in practice. And she was assuming inner critics. So it came into the interview saying, I'm experiencing a lot of inner critic. And we talked about it. And in the course of the conversation, she said, my mum died a little while ago. I forget how long it was. 
my mum died, and she was so wonderful, my mum. She was so wonderful. So she was still grieving in part for her mum. But she also said, it's hard to live up to that standard. Hard to live up to that standard. She was so wonderful. And I said to her, you know she's still alive. You know that she's still alive. She's still alive, uh, so to speak, in you, we could say, as an image, as a psychic person with a certain autonomy. Uh, now, she knew what I was talking about. She got it immediately. We're not talking about denial. She was feeling her feelings of grief, de- definitely. She wasn't cutting them off or hiding from them. We're also not talking about, I think, spiritualism is the word, where you do you know, seances and Ouija boards and all that. I'm not talking about that. Not denial, not spiritualism, something else, something else. She's still alive for the psyche, to the psyche, in the psyche, if you like, for you. And I also suggested, maybe you have a duty to that. Maybe you have a duty to her, to this image that's alive in you. The word duty, for us, mostly is a pretty heavy word, duty. It comes with a, with a, a sense of problem. But maybe the duty here has a sense of beauty to it. There's a beautiful duty. And again, she, she understood immediately. She was right there. Maybe, I suggested, maybe her kindness and her generosity comes through you. Something's coming through you. And maybe she wants that. Uh, and she said, this was incredibly free to think this way. She just The whole sense of what was happening, what was going on, the whole sense. She wrote me, uh, it was about two months later actually, she wrote me a, a lovely letter, a long letter, explaining how this is this way of relating to it actually opened a whole other uh, aspect and a whole sense of herself and her mother and the relationship, all that. Uh, very freeing and very touching and there was a real sense of beauty in that. She said uh, her words were life-changing in, in the letter. Something uh, really changed in, in the sense of existence. So we're not talking about spiritualism here, and not talking about denial in this case. We're talking about a way of looking, a way of entertaining. We'll talk more about this later today, but we're talking about a way of looking, something, a way of entertaining uh, something that opens it up in in a very different way, very different possibilities. And there were also other things, other aspects for her. It wasn't there were patterns to work through in relation to her mother and all that. But something at the core of it was very different. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there for now, actually. And I say, so starting simpler and uh, familiar and taking it in directions we're maybe not so familiar with, and we'll get more and more as we take it through the day. Um, But I think now let's do a sitting together. Uh, So if you want to stretch really just... Hopefully stay in the room and just take 30 seconds or so to stretch if you need to.